2017, South Dakota made it about four hours into the new year before they had their first murder of a trans woman. Jamie Lee Wounded Arrow was an active member of the Sioux Falls Two-Spirit and Allies group, and her murder sent shockwaves through the community. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to day nine of the 12 Days of Crime Lines. I have chosen a bunch of cases on my suggestion list that are just too short for full Crime Lines episodes. This one was recommended to me by Alex, so thank you very much for sending it over. Today, we're going to be talking about Jamie Lee Wounded Arrow. Jamie was Oglala Lakota and grew up on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Pine Ridge was part of the Great Sioux Reservation until the U.S. government realized there was financial value in the Black Hills when the Sioux would not give over the land through negotiations because, well, it was their land and it was sacred, military force was attempted. You may have heard of the Great Sioux War and that was the war over the Black Hills. If you are an American, you have almost surely heard of the Battle of Little Bighorn, also known as Custer's Last Stand. The Lakota called this the Battle of the Greasy Grass. This was a battle within the Great Sioux War, and it's one that the U.S. military lost in 1876. In the end, Congress took the land through legislation in 1889. They then broke up what was left of the Great Sioux Reservation, which was about half of it, and divided it into five smaller reservations, Pine Ridge being one of them. One year later, another tragedy you may have heard of occurred at Pine Ridge, and that is the Wounded Knee Massacre. Some backstory on the setup for this. Some of us have been taught about the Second Great Awakening and the religious revivalism of the 19th century among Christians. This also happened in indigenous communities in America starting in the 1860s. Ghost dance was the major movement, and it came in two waves. It started in the West, and it eventually moved into some Plains tribes. The ghost dance movement believed that the dead were soon to return, the lands would be restored to the tribes, and they would return to their traditional pre-colonial way of living. This future would happen sooner through following a moral code and by performing dances and songs that the prophets of the movement had revealed to them. Part of the moral code was to follow traditional ways and reject attempts at assimilation. The U.S. government's entire vision was assimilation and the extermination of indigenous culture, so they wanted to suppress the ghost dance movement. But in 1890, it had become more popular among the Sioux and those at Pine Ridge. In part, it became popular because things at the reservation were dire at this point. The government had recently cut rations to the tribe, and there was a harsh winter and drought that destroyed crops. A prophecy of a time of peace and security was desirable. There was another belief within the ghost dance movement that made the U.S. government especially nervous, and that was a prophecy that God was going to return to the earth, bury white colonizers 30 feet underground, while the native dead would be raised to live on their land. 
the government worried this ideal of them all being dead and buried undermined their authority. When Ghost Dance came to the Standing Rock Reservation, which is near Pine Ridge, Sitting Bull allowed the dancers to perform their ceremonies, though he didn't participate directly. But even without directly participating, Sitting Bull, as a leader and truly a celebrity at that point, gave Ghost Dance more support than the government was comfortable with. So they entered Standing Rock to arrest Sitting Bull on December 15, 1890. When he refused to get on the horse, a shootout occurred. Eight police officers, seven of Sitting Bull's supporters, and Sitting Bull himself died. This incident only increased tensions between the U.S. government and the reservations that used to be part of the Great Sioux Reservation. Like I said, that includes Pine Ridge. And the government blamed the ghost dance movement for it. So on December 29th, about two weeks after Sitting Bull was killed, the 7th Cavalry of the U.S. Army surrounded a group of ghost dancers near Wounded Knee Creek and demanded they turn over any guns they had. There is a debate about what exactly happened next to lead to the first shot being fired. I know the one I've always heard was that it was a deaf man named Black Coyote who refused to hand over his gun because it had been expensive and he was essentially not interested in the U.S. government robbing him at that moment. There may have been a little tussle over the gun and it was accidentally discharged. There's a conflicting witness statement saying it wasn't quite so accidental. Either way, that one shot ended in the army unleashing on the people. Most of the natives who had guns didn't even get a shot off before themselves being hit. 150 to 300 Lakota were killed, half of whom were women and children. 25 members of the cavalry were killed mostly from friendly fire. This was not a battle. It was not a shootout. It was nothing less than a massacre. So fast forward to 1973, the American Indian Movement, which we discussed in more detail during the Rose Downwind episode, occupied Pine Ridge Reservation in what was called the Second Wounded Knee. They chose the spot for the symbolism, and they wanted to bring awareness to the long-term effects of the centuries of anti-Native policy, as well as corruption within the tribal leadership. They didn't just want awareness, they wanted to force some change. While the 1973 occupation did not meet its goals initially, it did raise public awareness. Pine Ridge continues to this day to survive through much struggle. The poverty rate on the reservation is nearly 54%, when the average for the country is 15.6%. A major issue is the lack of jobs. Unlike other tribes that can leverage resources like lumber or oil, Pine Ridge has neither. Now, the reason they have neither is because they had both in the Black Hills plus some gold, and the U.S. government took it. Their resource-rich land was taken from them, and they were given what was the left. They were given the scraps. 
And then everyone can just stand around and wonder why the Pine Ridge Reservation has all the usual social and health issues we see in areas with a lot of poverty. And then act like we don't know what caused it. The effects are obvious in the statistics. The average life expectancy at Pine Ridge is 66 years old, which is the lowest in the entire United States. And Pine Ridge is where Jamie Wounded Arrow was born in January 1988 to Charlene Blackhorse and Horace Wounded Arrow. She attended school in Pine Ridge until she went to the Sherman Indian High School in Riverside, California, which is a boarding school. She attended for a semester or so before she returned to Pine Ridge, where she graduated. She also did a summer nursing program at Georgetown during high school. After high school, Jamie went to the Oglala Lakota College, where she majored in human services and social work. And friends said Jamie was just a compassionate person who drew people to her. And you can see this in the things she was interested in, nursing, social work, and later, addiction counseling. And the interest in becoming an addiction counselor came through her own experiences with substance abuse. But at 28 years old, Jamie was clean and sober and living in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Aside from the summer nursing program and the semester at the boarding school, Jamie had not lived away from the reservation before. But you know what they say when you're getting sober, you have to get away from the people you used to use with. You have to build new habits with people who support your sobriety. So Jamie found that by moving to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which is a good five hours across the state from Pine Ridge. Jamie was in her own apartment after she had stayed in a halfway house while she was new to sobriety. Thanks to her job at a teleservices company in late 2016, Jamie even bought her own car. Between the car, the apartment, and her two well-loved cats, Jamie had really landed on her feet in Sioux Falls. She hoped that once she had things going well for a little while longer, she would be able to pursue training to become an addiction counselor. While in Sioux Falls, Jamie joined the Sioux Falls Two-Spirit and Allies group. Two-Spirit is a modern term, first proposed in 1990 as a word for indigenous people who have both male and female spirits. There are people who are both indigenous and members of the LGBTQ plus community who do not like to use this term or they don't use this term, but from what I can tell, Jamie did. And remember our rule here, we call people what they want to be called. Jamie had found a lot of support in her transition to her true self from friends and family and, of course, through the Two-Spirit and Allies group. She had built a beautiful life for herself when violence entered her home. On January 6, 2016, a neighbor of Jamie's called the police. They said they had noticed a strong and truly awful smell coming from Jamie's apartment. The door was slightly opened, and the neighbor wanted the police to go by for a welfare check. When the police entered the apartment at 9.15 p.m., they found evidence that there had been a struggle. And in the back bedroom, they found Jamie's body. She had been stabbed seven times and had been dead for at least a few days. 
She was only 28 years old and had been in Sioux Falls for six months. In checking Jamie's phone, they found the last time she used it was 11.30 p.m. on New Year's Eve, wishing people a happy New Year. This final communication expressing joy and celebration was startling in juxtaposition to the terrible scene the police were at, but it also gave them a starting point for their investigation. And fortunately for them, they found there were security cameras covering the outside of Jamie's apartment. On the footage from New Year's Eve, December 31st, 2016, they saw Jamie enter her apartment at 8.30 p.m. She was carrying a KFC bag. Jamie was not seen leaving her apartment again. Watching the security footage from the overnight hours, investigators saw a man in a black hoodie, white shorts, and white tennis shoes approach Jamie's door at 3.30 in the morning. This man initially went to the front door and stood there, but no one answered the door. He walked around the apartment and was seen tapping on Jamie's bedroom window. Then he went back to the front door and was let in. An hour later, at 4.30 in the morning on January 1st, this man left the apartment. He was wearing the same hoodie, but had changed into black pants and different shoes, while he carried another pair of shoes in his hand. As he walked away from the apartment, he was seen throwing items into the woods nearby. A search of those woods uncovered Jamie's wallet and a pair of shoes that had been discarded. They were covered in a thin layer of snow, which let the police know these items were there for a few days and very likely the ones that were thrown into the woods on the CCTV footage. The security footage was obviously a major breakthrough, but we have crimes we've seen caught on camera before where you see the killer, you see the suspect, but you can't identify them. That's not the case here. The person going into and out of the apartment did not disguise his appearance, and he was already known to the police. His name was Joshua LeClaire, a 25-year-old friend of Jamie. The two had met in the halfway house that Jamie lived in when she first got sober. Two days after Jamie's body was found, Joshua was arrested at a laundromat in Sioux Falls. He gave a fake name when he was approached, and they then arrested him because that was a parole violation. Once in custody, Joshua gave the police a statement about the night Jamie was killed. Joshua admitted it was him on the security footage, and he was in Jamie's apartment that night. According to Joshua, he was blackout drunk, and after leaving Jamie's apartment, he passed out in Meldrum Park, about a mile from Jamie's home. He also said he used Jamie's phone at some point, but he didn't remember much more than that, and he very specifically did not remember any point in the night where Jamie was attacked. When Joshua was arrested by the police, he had a cut on his hand that was obviously healing. He was asked about it, and he said he woke up with it at the park. Then he said Jamie actually hit him first, which was a sudden recovery of his lost memories. 
But this cut did not appear to be a defensive wound, as though he was blocking something. It was believed to be a knife cut, and it is not uncommon for people to cut themselves during a stabbing. Joshua's DNA was found at the apartment, so it's very likely that's what happened. After Joshua's arrest, a witness came forward and said that he was with Joshua when Joshua threw a bloody sweatshirt into a dump truck at a construction site. Joshua told the person he had gotten into a fight with a man with a knife. Using this information, the police were able to find that construction site and retrieved the sweatshirt. They tested it, and it was Jamie's blood. One thing the investigator said to the media pretty early on was that this was not a hate crime. There was nothing from Joshua at all that indicated a bias or bigotry against the LGBTQ plus community. Social media posts, texts, messages to friends, and even interviews with his friends gave no indication that Jamie being trans would have been part of Joshua's motive. And Joshua met and befriended Jamie knowing she was transgender. He knew the entire time it wasn't sudden news to him. There was nothing at all in the messages and texts between Jamie and Joshua indicating they had any problem with each other. The truth of what happened between Jamie and Joshua that night is not known. But Joshua LeClaire was 25 with a long criminal history that tells us substance abuse and violence were part of his life. Joshua made his first appearance in court on Jamie's case on January 10th, 2017. He was charged with first and second degree murder and two counts of first degree manslaughter. It isn't uncommon to see multiple counts charged for the same crime like this. It doesn't mean he committed four homicides or would be convicted on four charges. It's just that the state had reason to believe the crime fit the definition of all of these charges. Either the investigation would lead the state to drop some of the charges, or they would go to trial to try to prove the highest charge, but then allow the jury to consider the lesser charges. And the reason there are two charges of first-degree manslaughter is that in South Dakota, there are multiple sets of circumstances that can make a homicide first-degree manslaughter. For each of these charges, the state was using a different part of the definition. Joshua's bond was set at $1 million after the state successfully argued that Joshua's unprovoked attack on Jamie made him a danger to society, as did his 13-page adult criminal record. He was also considered a flight risk because they had indications he was making plans to leave the area, but he was arrested before he could. After a year in pretrial detention, Joshua LeClaire struck a plea deal. He pleaded guilty to first-degree manslaughter. So the only thing left to figure out after the plea was the sentence. Prior to sentencing, Joshua claimed, all of the sudden, that Jamie had made sexual advances towards him that were unwanted, and that triggered the fight that ended in Jamie's murder. At sentencing, Joshua said he didn't mean for it to happen and that nobody deserved what had happened. He said it wasn't intentional and that he wasn't a bad person. He admitted he should have handled things differently before he asked the judge for a second chance. 
in South Dakota, manslaughter sentences can be very, very high. I was surprised. In Missouri, for example, voluntary manslaughter is a Class B felony, and the maximum sentence is 15 years. In New York, the maximum sentence is 25 years. In South Dakota, Joshua was facing 80 years, which is essentially a life sentence. The judge told Joshua that he did not believe that Jamie made sexual advances towards him, and I don't either. Mr. I blacked out suddenly remembered his motive when he needed a justification to lessen his sentence. Funny how convenient his memory is. Now, taking into account Joshua's criminal record and his unprovoked violence against Jamie Lee Wounded Arrow, the judge handed down a nearly 80-year sentence with 15 years suspended. That means Joshua can spend up to 65 years behind bars, though he will be eligible for parole in 42 years. That won't be until 2059 when Joshua LeClaire is 68 years old. Joshua will be serving most, if not all, of his remaining life in prison. And those many, many, many years that he is serving in prison are also years that he gets to live that Jamie Lee Wounded Arrow doesn't get. Jamie was a woman who pulled herself out of addiction. She started to put down roots in Sioux Falls, and she left a lasting impression on the Sioux Falls Two-Spirit community in her six months there. There is no amount of time in prison Joshua can serve that will make up for what Jamie and her loved ones lost. (laughs) 